Blog Talk Radio. Welcome back to the AJ Bruno Show. Today we will be speaking to uh, Gordon S. Wood, a Pulitzer Prize winning American historian and uh, professor emeritus at Brown about the American Revolution and the founding of the Republic. So we've done a lot of history-based shows in the past, but this is one big area I've wanted to get to and we haven't yet uh, discussed now. So we'll see how much we can get through. There's only um, so much time and so many things we can discuss, but we have uh, Dr. Wood on the line now. So let's put him on. Hello, and uh, thanks for uh, joining the show. It's uh, good to have you. It's my pleasure. Thanks. Great. Uh, so uh, to start off, uh, I wanted to mention, I read recently that uh, Dr. Bernard Balin passed away. I know he was a mentor of yours, and um, I read some of his books myself. I was wondering you know, if you could speak a bit about your background and how he tied into you know, your passion to become an historian and, and anything along those lines. Well, I went to uh, graduate school in the late 50s. I had gotten out of the Air Force, uh, having served three years, and I went to uh, Harvard, uh, intending to work with Arthur Schlesinger, Jr., who, if you recall, was a professor there, but also an uh, active member of the Democratic Party. And when I arrived at Harvard, I found out that he was not interested in graduate students any longer. He was really so much caught up in contemporary politics, and, and of course, he soon leave Harvard when Kennedy was elected in 1960. But... Uh, so I took a seminar with this young professor, Professor Balin, and uh, I had no interest whatsoever in colonial early American history. I wanted to work on recent American history. That's why I went to work with Schlesinger. But uh, taking that seminar changed everything. It was such an electrifying experience. We, uh, everyone who was in the seminar uh, was, was profoundly moved by it. And um, the rest is history. I, I became an early American historian as a result of, of Balin's uh, dynamic uh, character. So uh, he was a great historian, and uh, uh, he he lived a long life. He was 97, so it was not a unexpected death, but uh, I think it was a, a real loss for the profession. He, he published a book this year, his last book, at the age of 97, so I think it's a tribute to his to his career. Definitely. Um, so to talk about, uh, to get into colonial history here, uh, what was it that made the relationship between the colonists, uh, in particular when the Continental Congress met, uh, in terms of just airing their grievances to the Crown, uh, to the point where you know enough felt that declaring independence was deemed absolutely necessary. Well, I think they. It's a hard question to answer because there's a lot of latent forces going on beneath the surface. Uh, the colonies were developing very rapidly. They had the highest uh, demographic growth of any part of the civilized world at the time, and, and sooner or later uh, they were going to break from from Great Britain. But um, Britain made the mistake, if you think of it in those terms, coming out of the, of the uh, Seven Years' War of uh, asking the colonists to pay for some of it. After all, it had benefited them. The war had been fought principally in the New World and uh, defeating France. 
and, and expelling France from the North American continent. So it was to the benefit of the colonists that they got rid of France, which was an enemy. Uh, and they, the British government uh, asked them to pay for it or help pay for it. And they resisted. They felt that uh, if they allowed uh, the British government to tax them, that that would be um, the first step towards a complete uh, takeover of their economy and so on. And so that it escalated from that, from the Stamp Act, which r- created riots in all of the colonies, and uh, right up to the Coercive Acts of, of 1774, where the British government decided to come in harsh, harshly and punish them. And at that point, uh, the colonists had had enough. And, and uh, I think the, the British government was virtually paralyzed in, in, in the colonies. The royal governors had to abandon their posts and get on a ship. Uh, and they, the British decided to bring in troops. It was just a, an escalation of... of uh, forces they got out of hand. If the British government could have foreseen uh, what would happen, I think they might have reacted quite differently. But it, it, it was, um, it, it was a, a, clo- a series of events that are interesting to, to look at because of the, of the escalation. There wasn't really any intention of, of, of revolting in, in 1763. They had just come a, out of this victory over France uh, and the new new king George III come to the throne and the colonists celebrated him so there was a great deal of, of uh, patriotic feeling well, within a decade it had gone and it was through a series of actions by the British government uh, attempting to tax the colonists that uh, that led to that break interesting so you talked about uh, them sending additional troops uh, over here. Obviously, one of the most infamous examples was the garrison in, in Boston. And uh, towards the beginning of the war, uh, the colonial militia really had an astounding amount of success evicting them uh, from that city. What do you credit that early momentum to? Well, they brought over in, in 1767, 68, the British brought over uh, a number of, of squadrons of, of, of redcoats in a small town, Boston was about 15,000 people, and I think you had something like 6,000 troops. <laughs> That's a huge proportion of the population uh, made up of, of redcoats, of, of British uh, troops. And there was a lot of tension that came out in the uh, the Boston Massacre uh, with so many soldiers living among a civilian population that was bound to be tension. Uh, it was just a mistake. They they thought that that would intimidate the the uh, colonists by bringing all those troops in there, but it it had the opposite effect, and helped to escalate feelings. Um, and Boston, of course, was at that point was the center of hostilities. And and then when you had the Tea Party, which took place in December of 1773, um, where a bunch of of uh, Mohawk uh, people of, of colonists disguised as Mohawk Indians threw 10,000 pounds, that is value, 10,000 English pounds of, of tea into Boston Harbor. Uh, that, that really irritated the, uh, the, the British government. They said enough is enough, and they came in with a series of coercive acts um, punishing Boston and closing the port and, and creating a situation that I think 
electrified the other columnists because they they all said if they can do this to Boston, they can do that to us. And it was just a series of actions by the British government thinking, uh, I thinking that a show of power. After all, Britain was the most powerful nation in the world. I mean, we've had that same problem ourselves in the United States. You, you assume that because you're so powerful that you can do what you want to do and um, with troops. And we found that out in, in, um, in, in the Middle East, uh, mm-hmm. that it doesn't work quite so easily. And the, the British found that out, too, when they sent in troops uh, in, 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 to put down the, uh, the, the rebellion in Massachusetts. It just escalated feelings. And suddenly, uh, Boston's cause was the cause of all the colonies, and and there was a war going on for a year before we had the Declaration of Independence, but but set it in Boston, starting of course in April of, of seventy five, seventy seventy five with the uh, um, with the firing of the, at Concord and, and uh, Lexington. Mm-hmm. On that note, the war itself—I've heard two different interpretations. Do you hold to the belief that was it some sort of sort of an historical miracle, um, or was it the fact that the British Empire really fought this war with one arm tied behind its back, or were you somewhere in between? Well, no, it was not a miracle. It's very difficult to put down a rebellion uh, from from a, from a, from afar. We we found that out in in Vietnam. Uh, no matter how England was by far the most powerful nation in the world, it had just defeat, defeated France in a in a world war, the, the Seven Years' War. So England was was powerful, and it thought it could put down this rebellion. But uh, they had some of the same problems that we had with with Vietnam. You're dealing with a hostile population. Uh, you you uh, you're far you're three thousand miles away from your home island. And it, it's very difficult to put down a population that is uh, that is revolutionary, that is that is rebellious. Uh, there were some supporters, you know, loyalists, but only about 20% at most of the of the American population was loyal to Great Britain. The rest were either neutral or 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 they were rebel were, were rebels. Very very difficult to put down that uh, that. That rebellion. So, but they, they, the war went on for what seven or eight years. So the mm. British tried, uh, and of course they're fighting their own people. I mean, these were Englishmen that they were fighting, and so it had the sense of a civil war, uh, which divided England itself. There were lots of people in England who simply didn't support this war, uh, and so the English government was in a terrible position. And finally. Uh, uh, Lord North, who was the Prime Minister, went to George III after the Battle of Yorktown and said, I'm resigning. I, I, we can't put down the colonists. Mm. George would have fought on if he could have gotten political support from his from his uh, cabinet and from the uh, parliament, because he was a real hawk. But uh, at that point, it was just too late. Yeah, yeah. Well, he did call him the Mad King, so... Um, well, he didn't get mad until I mean he didn't have insanity until uh, later. He, later. Otherwise, he was he was of course a quite young man. He mm. inherited the throne at the age of 21, and so that's probably a, most kings don't come <laughs> to the office that young. Charles uh, presently is still waiting, and he's what in his 70s, waiting for Elizabeth to die. Yeah. <laughs> So to uh, to backtrack a bit here, um, still at an early stage of the war, one of the 
major engagements, the Battle of Long Island. Uh, Washington obviously narrowly, you know, diverted a, averted a disaster, losing his entire army. Uh, how significant was this event, uh, you know, at that point? And do you think it could have, you know, possibly ended the war right there? Well, it wouldn't have ended the war, but it would have been a disaster if his army lost his army. But, you know, the the Americans had the advantage that they could continue to recruit troops, even if his army had been captured. I think uh, it would have gone on. The war would have gone on. Uh, so that it, because the, the, the British had the problem. They had to bring soldiers from abroad. They had to hire Hessians. But the Americans could draw in their own population. And they, uh, you know, I think that they would have continued to, to mount an army, even if they had lost the army at, at uh, Long Island. Uh, the, the the British had a terrible time trying to put down a rebellion when you're 3,000 miles away. It was some of the same problem we had in Vietnam. Uh, you, you're dealing with a hostile population, and you've got some loyalists over there, but not enough. And uh, you're so far from your home, and you're you're dealing with with, with with people who are different from you, different population. In, in this case, they were the same people. They were English or British, uh, but they, the English army really had a problem trying to put down a rebellion 3,000 miles away. Uh, so I think that even if he had lost his army and, and hadn't got away, uh, but that was quite a miracle getting away you know, from from Long Island and getting back to Manhattan. Of course, he's on Manhattan. He's still on an island, and he's not really uh, in control of things. It, it, Washington kept escaping by the skin of his teeth there for those few early uh, months of the war. Um, but even if he had lost it, uh, his troops, I think the war would have continued. Uh, the British were bent on subjecting them, and that uh, that that was just a, a big mistake. Mm-hmm. No, it was definitely, definitely impressive, um, nonetheless. So, uh, one theater which I think does not get a lot of attention. Uh, it seems like the colonists and later the the U.S. in the War of 1812 um, had sort of an objective of invading British Canada that did not really succeed either time. Uh, what was the ultimate aim there, and uh, do you think that was kind of a misguided venture? Well, I think the the idea was that that we would invade this other this British colony and free them from British tyranny. Now, we miscalculated. The Canadians weren't about to join the Americans. There were many people in Canada who were refugees from from the earlier revolution who had gone to Canada. And so they had some sense that somehow um, these people were really Americans up there in Canada. Uh, And I think there was a hope that they they would throw off British tyranny. But that was not the case, and of course that was a disaster. The, uh, the invasions we made, we we burned York, uh, which was the capital, which is present-day Toronto. Uh, we burned it twice, and so the British retaliated by burning Washington D.C. Later in the war, Americans forgot that they had precipitated that retaliation by burning the capital of Canada. Uh, earlier, twice we had, we did. Uh, it, it was a misguided effort. The, the War of 1812 is, is a curious war, and uh, it, it really is left over from... The British, in a sense, were still treating us as, as, as colonists. Uh, there was a contempt for the country. We were a small country. 
compared to Great Britain, which was the most powerful nation in the world, had uh, had just defeated uh, Napoleon. And so the idea that we somehow should take on England was was a kind of misguided chutzpah on our part. And uh, the British finally uh, showed who was boss. They invaded and, and of course, burned Washington, D.C. And we were lucky that uh, we came out of the war with no great losses. I think uh, even the, our greatest victory, which was Jackson's uh, defeat of the British in, in New Orleans, occurred after the peace treaty was signed. So even if we, if, if the war had gone on and we hadn't had a peace treaty, that defeat by by Jackson of the British forces in New Orleans would have convinced the British that this was foolish for them. We were lucky to come out of it without losing territory. Um, mm. the, everything stayed the same, was essentially the status quo. But there were several years of war, and, and uh, it was a, the whole thing was foolish from the beginning. But it was we were being treated as still as a kind of colony of Britain, and, and there was that deep resentment that that uh, that, that led to the war. I think. Mm. Not to get too sidetracked, but I also heard when Washington was being burned in that war that there was some strange, unseasonable weather, and people kind of think it was I don't know, some sort of intervention that Washington wasn't completely burned to the ground, because it could have been a lot worse than it was. Yeah, I don't know that, the details of that, but uh, it was bad enough. Of course, Washington was a relatively small village, maybe with uh, maybe 10,000 people at best. Mm-hmm. Um, but it wasn't you know, humiliating to have your capital burned, and we lost the library, uh, the Library of Congress was was burned, and uh, we had to go ask Thomas Jefferson if he'd donate his books. We well, didn't donate to to sell his books to start the Library of Congress uh, all over again. Um, so it was devastating and humiliating. But we were fortunate to come out of it without a loss of territory. The British could have asked for uh, for much more for, for territory. They didn't want it. They just wanted to get. They had just defeated Napoleon. They they found our war was a, a kind of a, a irritating sidelight, um, mm. and and they really wanted didn't want to get deeply involved with the antagonism to the United States. Although the British remained our principal enemy uh, right up until the end of the 19th century, when everything got transformed completely and they became a major ally. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of a strange parallel, too, between those two wars, because obviously the revolution, it's pretty clear that the colonists won, but in the War of 1812, I've heard three different interpretations. Some say the U.S. won, some say Britain won, and some say even you know Canada won. So uh, where do you come down in that whole fight? Well, I think there was just a draw. Um, no. they, we didn't lose any territory. We uh, um, So that I, I think you'd have to say it was, we didn't lose anything. Mm-hmm. And we came out of it feeling that we had taken on the greatest power in the world, so that in that sense, and of course with the victory of, of Jackson's victory at New Orleans, which came after the peace treaty was signed, gave us a sense that we had defeated the greatest power in the world. So there was a tremendous feeling of, of uh, confidence and, and, uh, and, and you know, uh, triumph coming out of the... the uh, 1815, and so I think in that sense we thought we had won, but in technical terms uh, that was not true. We didn't gain any, we didn't 
uh, get the British to to change their their uh, trade policies. Things that changed it was the defeat of Napoleon and the end of the of the world war that was going on between Britain and, and France. That was causing the um, the trouble with our with our neutrality. And of course, once Napoleon was defeated, there was no longer a, a world war to interrupt our neutral trade. So we were fortunate in that sense. Mm-hmm. So there's a sense that I think we won, and so you get a tremendous sense of American nationalism coming out of that uh, that that uh, piece in 1815. Sure. So getting back uh, to the revolution here, um, and at the end of 76, uh, Washington obviously famously surprised the Hessian garrison in Trenton over Christmas. Uh, was this like a major strategic victory, or was it just kind of more of a, say, a propaganda uh, coup that kind of, you know, uh, helped Well, I think it's a great tactical victory, but it, psychologically it was absolutely important mm-hmm. because that was a low point. We hadn't, you know, we he had to abandon Long Island by the skin of his teeth, and then he almost got caught on Manhattan. He escaped from the British there and was in pell-mell retreat all the way down into New Jersey and in, into Pennsylvania. And uh, the army was melting away. These are the times that tried men's soul, said Tom Paine in a, in a piece uh, in, in, that came out in the fall of, of, of 76. So Washington was in a desperate situation. His army was going to disappear uh, at the end of the year. Uh, this, the men had signed up for a certain time. And so he he just decided I've got to do something, and he made he made this calculated risk to to uh, to, to attack Trenton, and he did it over Christmas, uh, and he got the Hessian soldiers who hired Hessian soldiers working for the British, uh, caught them by surprise, and and it was a tactical victory. Uh, Nine hundred men or so were uh, surrendered. German soldiers surrendered, and and it it gave the the patriot cause a real boost. So in that sense, it's, it's psychologically important and tactically important. But uh, in the larger strategic sense, it, it you know the British hadn't lost the war by any means. They, mm. their, their troops were all over the place. But uh, I think that was that was that was important for Washington's cause because it it, it gave everybody a, a boost. Certainly. So as we move into 77 and 78, the tide you know, starts to shift more in the Americans' favor. Uh, would you say Saratoga was the key turning point? Or, you know, I've spent some time at Monmouth Battlefield, and that's been pointed to as one of the turning points as well. Uh, can you break down exactly what Well, it was, yes, of course, it was yeah. very important because it was a major loss, uh, and, and an army of 5,000 or so plus men surrendered. Burgoyne surrendered to the Americans, and I think, and of course, what's interesting, it was, Washington was not involved in this. This was, uh, uh, but I think at that point, there these wiser heads must have in Britain realized that this is not going to be easy. And I think at that point, the British were willing to give the colonists everything they had wanted uh, on the eve of the revolution, and. No, no taxation. They just be tied to the king only. Uh, they sent a, a delegation over, but it was too late. Uh, at that point, it was too late. The French uh, decided that this these colonists may not that may may succeed after all, and so they came in on the side of the uh, United this new United States, 
And that changed everything, because not, suddenly the British were not just putting down a colonial rebellion. They're fighting a, a, a world war with their former enemy, whom they had defeated you know, 10 years earlier in the, in the Seven Years' War, so, uh, or the French and Indian War, as we called it. So this, this changed everything. Uh, and, and I think from that moment on, uh, wiser heads must have realized that this was not that that the British days were, were limited. That the days were limited, mm-hmm. and I think at that point, uh, the many people did think that. Uh, but of course, the hardliners uh, decided to be even tougher, and they invaded in the south, and they were going to uh, free the slaves. And they, they, you know, there's always the the feeling that when you lose a big battle like that, that you're going to have to be tougher. And the British came in really hard in the South and hit with some great victories. You know, they captured a huge army in Charleston, uh, a huge rebel army or American army. Uh, but I think it was an important turning point because it brought the French in. And suddenly Britain is dealing not with a colonial rebellion, but a, another a world war. Mm. Before we shift to the, the Southern theater, um, Curious, obviously, Valley Forge was also a trying time for Washington. Uh, do that? think that was the, the darkest moment of the war? I mean, could he have lost his entire army there, and would that have, would that have ended it? Or, do, again, do you think no, just I like don't Long think Island? That was the, I think the darkest out. moment was probably uh, in the fall of 76. Mm-hmm. That's when he really was in. He had, you know, he had fled Manhattan, and, and his army was melting away, and uh, it looked really bad. On the eve of, uh, that's why I think the Trenton business is so important, because that, that's really the darkest point, I think, for Washington. I think Valley Forge was tough, but he was at that point whipping an army into shape, uh, and, and uh, there was a sense of uh, purpose. And they came out of it with, with, with a battle in June, of Mon- a battle of Monmouth, where we took on the Redcoats, who, who, by the way, were the best army in the world. I mean, they, were the, they had defeated... Uh, you know they defeated uh, the the French, uh, so this was not uh, this was a major uh, victory. It, it it wasn't a real victory; it was a kind of draw. But it showed that these these colonists could take on the redcoats on their own terms and 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 do well. And I think uh, that that was important. So Valley Forge was a kind of preparation. It was tough because it was winter. And there were there were problems of, of supplies and so on, but I think it was a, uh, uh, a kind of uh, learning experience for the for the uh, for the colonial army or the, the American army. Great. So as we uh, turn to the the Southern Theater, obviously, uh, how different. You know, was this as the action moves to the colonies down there? When obviously the British thought there were more loyalists, and maybe they could uh, maybe they could turn it around. So, how do you differentiate this phase of the war compared to the the first? Well, they, yeah, you got a much. They saw the British saw this as the soft underbelly of the of the of the colonies, and there was some truth to that. There were more loyalists in the south than there were in New England, for example, or uh, elsewhere, although there were lots of loyalists in New York. Uh, but they, they, and there were slaves, and they thought that uh, this slave-ridden society could, if you especially you could uh, weaken it and, and uh, offer freedom to the slaves, uh, you, you, could, you 
could break up the South. And it was, it was very effective. They inv- invaded and took Savannah and then began rolling up the uh, the coast. They then took Charleston, which was a major port, and, and captured a huge army, uh, an American army. Things looked really good from the British point of view, and they became much more brutal. Uh, that is to say they were uh, uh, less willing to... You know, the early years of the war, they're fighting their own countrymen, and so there's a sense in which they, especially under the Howe brothers, who was General and the Admiral Howe, uh, in the early phase of the war, there was a reluctance to be too harsh because you've got to reconcile with your, you know, putting down a civil war is not easy because you, you're hoping to, to reconcile with the, with the people you're fighting. Uh, they seem to have abandoned that in the South. They were harsh, and of course there were many more loyalists in the South, and so it took on a, a real civil war aspect. Uh, but still, putting down a rebellion... 3,000 miles away from your home country, that's not easy to do. And uh, the British ultimately um, uh, couldn't, couldn't handle that, no matter how much support they had from loyalists in, in the Carolinas. So even after the, the siege of Yorktown, which is I know, seen as kind of the end of the war, the killing still continued for another few years. Um, why did it not come to an end immediately after, and why is this seen as, the finish, you know, when uh, soldiers kept dying afterwards. Well, I think, yeah, there were small skirmishes and, and, and so on, but they, the, the, essentially the, the war's over because the British are no longer going to mount any major hostilities. And they, then it had to come down to peace negotiations. <laughs> and that, I think, took some time. Uh, they, that was October of 81, and North immediately said it's over, even though George III wanted to go on, press on. He was a real hawk. George III, who was his chief minister, said, no, it's over. And uh, so you had negotiations, but you had no major battles after that. You had skirmishes and so on, people still fighting. And Washington is sitting out there in, in New York with an army that's about to fall apart. In fact, you have the uh, New- Newburgh crisis, uh, in, I think it's what in March of of '83, where we're close to a military coup d'état, as the United States has ever come to, where the the army officers were were about to march on the Congress and demand support, and so it was a really critical moment in that sense. But uh, there was no major, there were no major battles. It was essentially skirmishes and fighting was going on. But negotiations were were going on in in, uh, in Paris. So the the army. I mean, the war was virtually over. It's a question of who gets what. What can we negotiate? And actually, the British were really quite. Um, if you think about it, were quite generous. Uh, they they didn't. Uh, they they gave pretty much the the territory that we uh, we ended up with um, as, as the United States. Uh, they could have demanded, uh, you know, much bigger chunk of. They could have demanded Vermont and, and a, a much bigger chunk of the Middle West <coughs> than they than they got. So I think it. Uh, there wasn't anything really going to happen much after Yorktown. Sure. I want to get a little bit into the you know, early events after the war and the, the founding of the republic. 
Uh, so after the Treaty of Paris, we had a rather weak system of government in the Articles of Confederation, uh, so much so that hardly anyone remembers the names of the actual first presidents. Uh, why is that? Well, the Articles were really so, sort of like the EU. It's 13 states coming together in this confederation. It's actually quite a strong confederation, but it is uh, it is that. It's if, if you think of the EU, uh, you know, European Union, you get a better idea of what the confederation is. It's not an early version of the national government that emerged, you know, a decade later in 1787. <laughs> so uh, it, it's very weak, and and I think the uh, pressure was mounting to give it. Ta- it had no taxing power. <clears throat> it had no power to regulate trade. So you know, Massachusetts was putting tariffs on on goods coming from Connecticut. I mean, it just didn't make sense. And so there was a a strong uh, move to to amend the Articles. But there were also other problems going on in the states. And people like James Madison were more more interested in these abuses of power in the uh, state legislatures. And they used the crisis at the national level to, to do away with the Confederation entirely and create this very strong national government that we have, <coughs> excuse me, uh, in in 1787. So sure. uh, most people were surprised at the at the results of the Philadelphia Convention of 1787. It came out with this really strong government. It's a strong government because we know it's strong because it's the one we have, and it was totally unexpected by many people. They thought that the convention that formed in Philadelphia would add a few articles, a few uh, uh, amendments to the Articles of Confederation and give them the taxing power and the power to regulate trade, but wouldn't scrap them entirely and create this entirely new, strong national government with a president and a two-house legislature and a Supreme Court. That was just not expected by most people. So it was a great surprise to a lot of people. And that's where you have a strong anti-federalist movement. Definitely. We've heard it said that the first president, it couldn't be anyone about Washington. Do you think he was absolutely necessary as the first commander-in-chief? And can you speak a bit about how critical it was in the early days? Oh, I think his his presidency was essential because the country could have easily still fallen apart. There was strong opposition to this unprecedented national government. We take it for granted now, but uh, nobody foresaw it. In 1776, nobody in his wildest dreams conceived of a a national government like that. So Washington gave it a legitimacy, and people treated him as as if he were a kind of monarch, a king. They were used to a king, after all, and and he played that down. He didn't like that. In fact, his, his draft for his first inaugural address... He, he said, look, uh, he wrote it out, and he, he gave a draft to James Madison to look at. And and in this draft, he said, look, look my fellow citizens, I, I have no heirs. He had no children of his own. Uh, I cannot create a, a monarchical line. I'm not a king. I don't want to be a king. And, and Madison said, you can't put that in there. You've got to cut that out of your speech. Uh, but he, he felt um, so strongly, and most people... If he had had children, they might have accepted him as a king. And, and of course, they were used to 
monarchs and kings, and so it, it was natural that they they would have these feelings. So he acted as a kind of monarch in that first um, those first two terms. Uh, but he was a reluctant monarch. Everyone knew that. He wanted to get back to Mount Vernon as badly as possible. He, he wanted to do that in 1792, but the country, everyone said, you've got to stay on. This nation is too too weak, too uh, too new. You're, you're the only thing holding it together. And so he stayed on for another term. But in 1796, he was through. He was going to leave. And he wrote his farewell address uh, and... and went back. He could have served until he died. In fact, many people thought he would, but his retiring at the end of two terms set that pattern that was continued all the way up until FDR, uh, who broke it in, in 1940 uh, under the uh, threat of World War II. So, um, uh, and then, of course, we felt so strongly that we put it into an amendment um, so that the president cannot serve more than two terms. Washington would have he could have served for life easily. In fact, I think many people thought that's how it would work. He would he the president would serve and keep getting reelected until he died and then the vice president would take over and he would serve until he died and that's how it would go, but that's not the way it operated. Washington um he he he, he exemplified to to everyone the proper republican kind of leader. Um because of his uh, his desire to 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 not exert power, he had the capacity to be a dictator. In fact, many people asked him to be a dictator, and he refused. Mm-hmm. No, I mean he's someone. When you think of a statesman who's basically sacrosanct, sacrosanct in this country, I think people think of him. Uh, do you think, though, in today's world, are we at a risk of you know kind of the politically correct culture we have? Do you think Washington would come under more fire, or do you think that he's just too respected? Well, yes, he has, because he, he was a slaveholder, although he he freed his slaves at, uh, upon his death. Uh, but the fact that he was a slaveholder through his whole life uh, taints him in our modern eyes, uh, even though he was the only one of the uh, major slaveholders. And all those Southern leaders, Madison and Jefferson and, and others, were slaveholders who did not free their slaves. He did. Uh, he was very conscious of his reputation, and I think that that played a part in his desire to to free his slaves upon his death. Um, but he will not have his like again. I mean, they, he's not a, a modern politician. None of those people were really uh, politicians in in the modern sense. Uh, they didn't have to campaign for office, and and would would have found that to be totally uh, repugnant. Uh, so there was a different world back then, uh, mm-hmm. and, and it was an extraordinary group of leaders. We were fortunate to have these so-called founding fathers because they, uh, you know, they, given the size of the population, uh, it was quite uh, quite extraordinary that we should have produced them. Uh, think of Virginia, for example. It had 350,000 people. I mean, that's like the size of what? I don't know, Tulsa? Uh, yeah. And they produced all those people, Washington, Jefferson, Madison, uh, George Mason, Patrick Henry, all from one Virginia society. I mean, it's incredible kind of leadership coming out of a relatively small population. So it's a different world back then, and and we have to appreciate that. I think 
it's not easy to do because we somehow want them to be like us and we charge them with uh, with crimes uh, that uh, for, for being slave holders for example mm. that uh, uh, that that's that's a different world from our own we're we're applying our present standards to this very different past i think that's well said so uh, from the historical education perspective, uh, and of all the Revolutionary War-based series, movies, documentaries, you know, books that you've seen or read, uh, what do you find the most worthwhile? There's one I saw back when History Channel produced good content called The Revolution. I don't know if you saw that, but that was a quite good show. I, I, don't, I don't know which one you're I, – I mean, it's very hard. There's some documentaries that have been done, but – Hollywood's not been very good with the revolution. We're, we're not very, we Americans aren't very good with costume drama anyhow. I mean, the the British are much better at it. And they, they can do uh, 18th century in a way that we can't. I mean, we, uh, we, we have modern sensibilities. The actors somehow just don't adopt uh, an 18th century uh, character. They, their expressions on their faces, everything is just, modern they're unable to get back to another time and so we're not very good with with historical drama uh the british are much better at it uh so mm. i don't know of anything that's been done well on the re- on the american revolution now yeah. we could have documentaries which are done by you know pbs and so on and they have talking heads but they aren't terribly exciting for most people mm. um the revolution is you know it's it's a very exciting kind of event and if you get back in 76 it, it, it looks almost impossible that the colonies could win uh now we know how it turned out so it's, it's difficult to recapture that but it is an extraordinary thing to have this small relatively you know four million people taking on the greatest power in the world and winning uh, so the revolution has a, a kind of dramatic and and uh patriotic aspect to it that that makes it very compelling but we've never had good hollywood movies coming out of it that i know of i mean the patriot with mel gibson was for such a disaster in the sense that he he didn't want to play a slaveholder and yet he's he's kind of a character like like marion uh a kind of guerrilla warfare he could have easily been a slaveholder and, and who came to doubt slavery but instead he he has to he has hired he has hired blacks. I mean, it's just impossible for a South Carolinian to have been that. And so it destroyed the credibility of the movie right from the outset. Um, and, and of course, they exaggerated. They had the British burning a church with people in it. The British army was, was rather cruel. They were shooting prisoners, but they didn't mm. burn a church. That's what the Nazis did in 1945 yeah. they, in France. They burned a church, but to have the British soldiers burning a church with people in it uh, was a little too much. But that was that was the Patriot, the movie. I've never seen a good Hollywood movie of the of the Revolution. We're just not very good with costume drama. No, too bad. Yeah, I was thinking of that example from the Patriot too. So yeah, it was pretty outrageous. Um, but before I let you go, I know you've written quite a few books. If there was one you'd recommend uh, people listening would pick up, uh, which one would it be? Of my books? Yeah. Or of any book? Either or. 
Well, I, you know, I've written a book called The Radicalism of the American Revolution. It doesn't deal with the war, because the war is incidental as far as I'm concerned. Uh, the revolution was much bigger event than than the the war itself. The war was a prerequisite. You had to win the war to get independence, but it is by no means the revolution. The revolution is a much more dramatic change in the society and the culture of 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 the of the of the colonies into what became the United States uh, in all aspects. Uh, and, and that, I think, is, is what the revolution is really about. The war is incidental in the sense that you needed it. You needed mm-hmm. to be independent. But it is by no means uh, what we should mean by the American Revolution. Yeah. Well, that's a great way to sum it up. And again, this was a fantastic uh, talk, and you said a lot of informative things. I wanted to thank you again for being on. Okay, well, good. Good luck. Thanks. Great. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye.